Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, please check us out online at hpaonline.com. The HPA Net Committee has a lot of great virtual content coming out, so be sure to check out what's new on our site. And for anyone tuning in for the first time that are also not familiar with who the HPA is, they are a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. And if you want a more in-depth verbal breakdown of who they are, or who I am for that matter, check out episode one of this podcast series. And I feel like I have to say this. To all the people that are subscribers to this podcast, I'm sorry it's taken so long to get this next episode out. Things have been a bit crazy in a good way, I suppose, going from lockdown mode with zero production shooting to going back to being busier than we've ever been, at least where I'm working, in a matter of a couple weeks. However, I think this really truly hit home when I fired up all my gear to do this podcast recording and I literally had to wipe the dust off the recorder. <laughs> but the good news is that I'm back and I've actually got a couple episodes in the works, so you should see a lot more content coming out soon. But we are here today to talk about the many interesting technologies that were used on the film Ripple Effect. This job had an LED-walled stage that, as everyone knows, seems to be all the rage right now. However, we're really hoping to get past some of the hype and promotion of the technology, you know, that you've heard on jobs like The Mandalorian, and get a sense for some of the realities on set, as well as look at some of the other technology and processes used on this really interesting job. So here with us today to get into all of that is Catherine Brillhart. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Hello. Thanks for joining us. So a quick little background on Catherine for our listeners out there. Catherine is a cinematographer and producer who leverages volumetric capture, visualization techniques, and supervising visual effects to enhance projects. For the past decade, she's helped to redefine best practices and standards in virtual production and has advocated for diversity in the film industry through her role as the global board of directors through the Visual Effects Society. And Catherine's also a member of the Virtual Production Committee within the ASC Motion Imaging and Technology Council. And a couple of her recent projects include The Mandalorian, Call of the Wild, The One and Only Ivan, and Dr. Doolittle. So obviously a wealth of experience there, which is awesome. And giving back through the ASC, that's a lot going on there in your life. <laughs> yeah. So to kick things off, I guess, Catherine, why don't you explain to everyone what ripple effect is i feel like a lot of the people that are involved in these communities like the asc are aware of it because it's been a lot of people have been talking about it there's a lot of buzz but i, I feel like for some of the people that are not totally involved in some of these organizations they might not know sure i kind of was thinking about this there's a short answer and a long answer um i'll go short first just because it's maybe easier for context. So this summer, the Entertainment Technology Center at the University of Southern California produced its latest uh, short R&D film called Ripple Effect to test virtual and remote workflows and provide insight into COVID safety workflows for major studios. I was brought onto the project as an executive producer and the director of virtual production and was an integral part of both aspects of uh, our project. Our main focus was to explore real-time game engine workflows in order to design and execute final pixel in-camera visual effects for display on smart stage LED walls 
and using our Scripps 3 main locations, we basically designed and executed virtual backgrounds for each of these workflows. And that's sort of the segue into what the project is and kind of how to break it down. Mm -hmm. But to give a little bit more background for the ETC, it's a separate nonprofit that's associated with the USC School of Cinematic Arts. And they really focus on connecting academic resources of USC with industry professionals and different new technology and innovators. So this was for them, this is an accelerator project that they do maybe once every four years or so for recent grad students. And so it's this, they awarded three MFA grads the chance to write and direct and two of the women went on to direct and several roles on our film were actually recent grad students of that program. So it's kind of this interesting hybrid project. And I think that's kind of interesting too, because something that um, makes it unusual is that it's this sort of studio funded project with, you know, studio level stakeholders, Universal, Warner Brothers, Amazon Studios, Microsoft. Wow, they were all involved? Um, to name, to, just to name a few, right? Wow. Um, and then because it's a nonprofit and they sort of ask for these volunteered donated resources. We had huge heavy hitter companies like Halon Entertainment, ICVR, Stargate Studios, Lux Machina, Global Trend Pro, Digital Film Tree, wow. Virtual Wonders, like donating um, time and materials to the project as well to kind of elevate the tools and the workflows that we had access to. So on this one hand, it, it was like maybe a studio funded test you know, for these workflows. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, there was this kind of indie student film learning project kind of vibe as well. What an amazing experience for those students. It's incredible. To yeah, totally weird dichotomy. Like, so, you know, it's, they got to see and have access to studio level resources. But then we also had to think about ways like if we were an indie filmmaker or, or because this part of it feels kind of indie, how do we put together a creative workflow that's a little bit more on budget? That sounds crazy. It's almost like you'd have to tell the students, okay, now that you've been in the future and you want to go out to the real <laughs> world to work, you have to go back in time to all the normal film sets that aren't quite ready for this yet, for the technology yeah. that you were utilizing. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, it's fun, interesting conversation. Like, so if you wanted to replicate this again on your own, mm -hmm. here are some of the tools that you could probably still have access to. And then yeah. here are some of the tools that you'd have to pay for probably. So considering the fact that the goal was to really harness the power of a lot of new technology, who was vetting, who was being brought to the table as a vendor and the technology companies that were brought in? Who was on point for saying that, you know, this part of the service will be provided by this vendor? Because it's not like a normal job where like production and post has a, or was it like a normal job where you'd have players and they'd say, I like working with Digital Film Tree, I'd like to bring them on. Or was it more like Digital Film Tree has this really interesting technology, therefore they need to be the people that are on this part of the job? It was a little, it was a little bit of both. So Eric Weaver is the executive producer who's, who pulled everybody onto the project hmm. representing ETC from the very beginning. And Greg Chaccio and I joined as executive producers in addition to the other roles that we're playing. And um, that's kind of the interesting freedom of this project that I learned very quickly was that I landed in this role and was responsible for organizing all of the vendors who were already interested in being part of the project and working with each of them to find out what, what they were, wanted to contribute, what they wanted to get from the project what questions they had that they wanted to get solved and how they wanted to contribute. Sounds kind of similar to like the lost leader hosen thing at the HPA, right? 
Yeah, I yeah, I basically took all that input and then I also took all of the questions that we received from Universal and Amazon Studios. We just had like lists of questions that they wanted answered from all of these use cases and from mm. this project itself. And part of this too is like, you know, having conversations with the director saying, "Hey, what's your vision? What creatively needs to happen and come out of this script?" So that as I'm breaking it down with vendors and talking about what workflows are possible within the resources that we have, that your vision is also kind of being captured as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, their direction also gave me more information about who else we needed to pull on the project. And of course, Eric and Greg helped pull people on as well with that direction. So hmm. it was nice okay. that we had such a wide range of resources to tap into for this. That's great. And I heard you did something that your team was referring to as safety viz. I've never actually heard that term until this job. I'm just curious what that is. Yeah, well, you know, previs and tech viz are kind of, it's funny to say, traditional parts <laughs> of virtual production at this point. Because those of us who've been in it for a while, we're just like, well, yeah, of course. Visualization, that's that can define a film as a virtual production film, like Ford versus Ferrari, with the extent of like, tech viz that they used. But I'd say safety viz is like an extension of tech viz in a sense that we're, you know, when you're tech vising, you're you're using a real-time game engine. You can almost iterate the shot and make the shot before you've created the shot in a computer in advance so that you can anticipate what you'll need and plan the best that you can to execute on the day of the shoot. Mm -hmm. And what we did with safety viz is we took all the same techniques that you would typically use in visualization and just apply that to building out COVID safety plans specifically. So we work with Virtual Wonders, which um, they use photogrammetry and LiDAR volumetric capture techniques to scan the stages that we used. So we made sure that we had the correct stage configurations in our locations. We had them photogrammet uh, photogrammetrically scanned. <laughs> and then what was nice is we could deliver those scans to Digital Film Tree who created these real-time interactive safety plans for us using data about how we would like to run the set. For example, we collected all this international data and statewide data about best safety practices and protocols. And so Digital Film Tree could like, you know, use avatars and things to show if these people waited in the line that you're suggesting, it could cause like an hour delay getting your crew on set. Really? So it's almost like they zoned different section of the set off and we're mapping out that how often would this person need to to move and what zones yeah. could they go in and out of at what times yeah yeah so like you know like huh. if you didn't have a game engine you'd probably you'd probably have to work with a 2d overhead map as a producer or something and kind of try to figure out zoning and uh, it'd just be a different way of iterating but what's nice about doing that in a game engine is that you can create that bird's eye view and have printable maps and guides that you can print easily for your crew. We, in fact, did that and would attach our protocol visually to the back of each call sheet. Hmm. For insurance companies, or like proving that you have a COVID-safe plan, it's nice to have that game engine layout because you can take a camera in that space and record a narrative scenario. And, you know, when a production team and producers are looking at a scenario visually like that together and they're looking at all the narratives from each department's point of view like i'm a dp and i'm walking in and this is my zone and these are the people that i'm interacting with suddenly you can start seeing your plans fall apart and the same way that a director is kind of using 
previs and tech viz to explore the narratives of their story and kind of iterate that way and see what holds up and doesn't hold up. Producers can also use safety viz to check their plan. Like, you know, this mm. gear and our crew won't fit in the same space. We need to reimagine how we do this. So for remote workflows, I mean, it was amazing. And I would say that it really enhanced our virtual scouting of those locations. I see. And assuming this was the first time a lot of the crew had done something like this, do you feel like they walked away and they said, wow, I want to do this on more jobs moving forward, considering this job ripple effect was a test bed for that? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think it was kind of eye-opening for everyone too, that it's, it's not just safety viz and the plan. I think that really helped us have smarter plans, but it also helped us course correct quickly because there were the narratives that we thought would play out on set. And then there were things that would actually really happen. Like when you're wearing a mask and then a face shield, people can't hear each other. So they get closer and you're just like, oh, interesting. You know, like, okay. And then, um, <laughs> We had layers of contact tracing using set buddy technology as well, which helped because it helped. We could then track who was talking to who at what point and how close they were. And when they broke mm. that six foot boundary, we thought that having a COVID safety officer might be more effective to kind of keep people apart. But that just mm -hmm. made people irritable and like was really kind of insane after a while. They're like, well, like, ah, stop breaking up our conversation. This is really crazy. I see. Yeah. So I guess people just responded better to a vibrating phone versus someone coming over and pushing them apart. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm, I can't imagine we won't hear more about this and more jobs using this kind of a process considering, uh, you know, in, here in Canada, we're in we're back to lockdown mode here and we happen to still be allowed to shoot. And, you know, even in the States as well, it's not exactly getting much better in terms of being able to lift a lot of these, uh, these protocols. So that sounds great. So one other thing I like to often ask any of my guests, cause it's fascinating to me, what cameras seem to be owning the market with a job like this. And the fact that you could have used anything you wanted, what were the main cameras that were used? The main camera we used was the Airy LF, actually. Hmm. It's interesting. So we, we shot the project this summer, and I think a major influence was all of the published pieces on Mandalorian and their workflow and why they were using this camera. And there was definitely debate for several weeks of the pro I mean, like, I would say till the end of the project, definitely, but while we were making that decision, mm -hmm. just tons of back and forth. The main draw for that camera is the large sensor and the shallow depth of field, because when you're working in a studio, it means that you can be closer in distance to the LED wall and still throw it out of focus. Hmm. And uh, that becomes important because if you're moving the camera from left to right against the screen or if there's camera movement in your shot, there's the chance that you might see more ray on the screen mm -hmm. and so making sure that the talent and your camera are a specific distance away from the screen mathematically makes that moray less visible Interesting. especially if you're changing angle there are certain things like ideally you would keep the camera as perpendicular to the screen as possible even in a camera move and like if you're on steady cam, that's more organic than a dolly and a dolly is more controlled movement but you could still be not super precise and still see moray so there are different ways to kind of play with that, like change the distance of the camera to the wall, throw the wall out of focus more, try to just change the angle slightly so that you don't see 
that moray. Was that like a constant struggle that you were you, that you had to be constantly watching for on set that you'd say, whoa, 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 wait, let's go again and we have to change this or that because we're seeing moray? Yes and no. What's so crazy about doing a project like this is there aren't a ton of case studies with full-on written reports of what to do if you encounter this problem. So there's what we were anticipating going into this shoot. Then there's what we discovered through our testing process. And then there's, you know, what actually happened the day of the shoot. And I would say that in the planning stages, we were like, what if we can't solve Moray? Got a plan for the plan for the worst. And we know that projects like the Mandalorian had successfully used this camera mm-hmm. and they were in smaller spaces and we're going to be in smaller spaces. Like we shot at the Lux stage, which is fairly tiny compared to XR stage. So I think that played a big role in the deciding factor. And then on the other hand, there's the conversation about building tools and developing tools in the game engine that work with your physical camera system so that when you're on set, you're able to calibrate your virtual and physical camera and you have the tools that you need virtually, I guess, Hmm. to work with your camera. You basically just need to be able to integrate your camera system into that virtual game engine space as well. And Lux, we already knew that we were shooting there and they have Airy LF integrated into their stage operation system. And um, one of the fun Wild West parts about our project was that XR stage was just a stage in a warehouse and did not come with any specific operators that had tools developed for their stage or like understood the stage. You know, that was a combination of teamwork between Stargate and ICDR that we sort of had to invest a little bit of time in development Mm -hmm. as much as we could, a little bit of time testing on stage and then just, you know, executing without certain tools in place, which was fascinating. So that's kind of long-winded, but I would just to kind of talk more about cameras I think those camera tests are really happening right now, especially between Lux and Epic Games, putting together unique testing behind the scenes. And then ETC, since the completion of this project, we've wanted to explore more cameras so um, against LED walls. So kind of getting a similar group together to create work groups that are really studying this and maybe doing a joint study through ASC to make sure that we're acknowledging color space and other important parts of the workflow. But Mm -hmm. hindsight, my opinion is like, hey, I'm not so much, I'm not really worried about moray, really. I'm worried about the artifacting, like scan lines and banding that could happen across the entire length of the screen or within an individual panel, little tech issues where you have to profile devices and make sure your system's calibrated, like Genlock, global shutter. I would love to work with cameras that have global shutter against the screen. The screen frequency, you have to calibrate. You have to understand the LED refresh rates. All these things kind of impact. Yeah, because I used to do playback on set, and I remember even just getting, you know, monitors on set where, you know, someone runs a fingerprint scan because it's an FBI show or something. Even those, there was always a lot of conversations about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, yeah, so it's interesting. So we... Um, this project, we didn't have a start guide that was like, hey, if you're a DP, these are all, this is how I would calibrate my system to the wall. And if I'm a stage operator, this is how I would calibrate the stage if the DP gives me this information. We're kind of documenting that process as we're doing this film. And um, we're now with the test group that I was mentioning, kind of going back and taking more care and time and deep diving into all that and looking at those details and then putting together maybe more of a producer cinematographer like start guide 
yeah for those kinds of processes but just to simplify that like before the project we were like wow more ray that word keeps coming up we're gonna have to solve that that's gonna be really tricky artifacting and between the two after this experience i'd say our artifacting takes more time on the front end to isolate and eliminate from the project and in some cases there were artifacts like scan lines and banding that we weren't able to eliminate in some cases and we just had to shoot around them and i felt like that impacted some of the creative on set Interesting. So, but at that point, were you just saying, you know what, we'll fix this in post? <laughs> I'd hate to use that word in a situation where you're trying to get no. everything in camera, but. Well, actually, no, I took a really purist approach to this project and was just like, no, we're not going to fix anything that happened incorrectly on the screen in post. We won't blur the screen in post. We kind of ended up setting these like unique guidelines. And so I felt like you know, in color, it's totally fine if we want to pull reflections out and make them more visible and use post-color correction to kind of tap into the high dynamic range that we we're capturing and enhance the pictures. If there is sound or boom equipment in existing reflections in the shots, sure. it's okay to do a fix it, but we'll try to avoid that mm -hmm. as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So we kind of went in with some fix it visual effects are okay, but we're going to make an effort to fix this all in camera for this specific thing. And so in that situation, when you would see artifacting, I'm just trying to understand, like when you, when you see artifacting on the, on the LED wall, where do you, 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 where do you go? You, you obviously go and talk to the Unreal operator and see. Like an example of that would be like, we had this dining room scene and there's a huge window that takes up a third of that wall because we're showcasing the parallax of the world outside and it's dark, it's high contrast. And so any artifacts that would happen would be very visible. And generally, Genlock, if your hardware systems are Genlocks, you might see some banding to your eye. That banding that I'm describing is like if you see a line go from one side of your whole screen to the other side of your whole screen, <laughs> then I haven't experienced this part. But I, after talking to a few other people who experienced more specific banding with, within panels that they just noticed little chunks of their image having artifacting issues. It's not so much about your shutter angle and your screen frequency and your gen lock, you know, and trying to get that nailed down in your camera frame rate. It can be a little deeper, like what are the LED refresh rates in that panel specifically? And then having to try to figure out how to mathematically sort of dig into that specific panel. And then when do you cut your losses and frame that out and move forward? Yikes. But at least that would be a consistent thing, right? If there is an issue with that panel, it's probably not just going to happen the odd time. You would constantly see it through the lens of the camera, right? You'd probably uncover a lot of this during your testing phase. Yeah. Because the way you would approach this isn't just like, oh, I'm going to throw up a screen and construct it, and I'm going to go from visualization and tech viz to my final shoot. You kind of have this tech viz process that after having this experience, I think that you should be integrating that into your tool development with the screen. So you're kind of spending this long time on stage with the same configured screen that you're going to be doing your final shoot in. Yeah. And you're using this time to develop tools and actually create the recipe for the shots that you're going to do and make sure that as you're going through those steps in that process that you're able to kind of isolate all these things before you get to the shoot. Our film 
that's what I was saying earlier. Like we just had the disadvantage of a really short amount of time because we did have to solve some of these things on set during final execution. Hmm. But the goal would be as producers to understand that you need time to sort that stuff out in advance. And you need to actually plan to have the same resources that you're going to do your final shoot with during those test days. Otherwise you're not really testing anything. Yeah. Well, and, and the stage you had said, for the most part, you walked into having to build out a lot of the stage. So I'm curious for the signal flow for an LED walled stage, you know, many traditional scripted episodic shows and features will send their cameras log feed to a DIT. The DIT would live color grade that image that goes out to Video Village. And I'm just thinking about this kind of a scenario where you have this other completely separate video signal that's going out to the background on this LED wall. Is someone in charge of doing a live grade on that as well to make sure that it is getting timed or is it just pre-decided? Well, that's a, it's a conversation that needs a deeper dive because when you talk about color management in this pipeline, there are a few considerations. Right now, there isn't an ACES color management workflow from the engine itself. Oh, and this this job was ACES for the rest of the color management? Yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it was interesting because there isn't like an ACES or like a mm-hmm. color space that um, is industry standard that you're working in in Unreal Engine. But even then, you're still baking it into what's being recorded. There was that sort of component mm-hmm. to it and making sure it was looking good to the eye, essentially. So was there a human involved in that process then to make sure it was looking yeah, good to so the then eye? That, so then that operator becomes, um, you know, in the XR stage case, it would have been ICBR, who was our bad team that then came and helped be our on-set bad team as well. So they were making sure that what we were reviewing was the same, you know, integrity. But then... When that image is displayed on your LED wall, the LED panels themselves are limited to an RGB color gamut. So if you're talking about color on your set and lighting where you're using the screens themselves to emit light and like light part of your scene, it makes you ask a lot of interesting questions about what is white on my set. So as a DP, you're kind of looking at this going like, well, okay, so I can't really... I don't have a ton of control right now with the color and workflow coming out of engine. So I don't really know what that is. And then I, but I do know that the screen is RGB and that's different mm-hmm. than the practical lights that I'm using. Cause maybe they're RGBW. But they could at least say, Hey, can you warm that up? Can yeah, you yeah. cool that down? Or can you, can you crush the blacks a little bit that that's actually possible? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the difference between working with, and it's funny too, because we had a couple different workflows here. So we had the, the workflow with ICBR and Stargate and XR stage, and that was very Wild West where um, we had to dial in everything manually with teams that were getting to know the walls and the tech as we were going through our testing and execution. It was just like learning, learning, learning. And then we also had the ability to work with Lux in their own test stage where they have already developed tools that they're using. They understand the color of their screen. They work with it every day. Like they have worked with colorists already to dial in 
their screens to the sensor of the camera mm-hmm. and they can help us walk through dialing in a specific color chart that they had built virtually that we could then check against our physical color chart in the same global lighting. Yeah. So I don't know if this is answering your question. Well, I think it, it certainly does from the, the scientific standpoint. I think from the creative standpoint, though, I guess if you had the DP standing there looking at the stage, considering the, the amount of reflection off the screen that's lighting the set, I'm just thinking about the interaction between a DIT and the DP where they might come over and they might say, oh, lift that up a little bit. Okay, cool that down. I want it to look like moonlight. Do this, you know, like... I guess there might be a similar conversation than happening with the operator. I guess there is an operator that would be controlling the Unreal Engine that would just dial that in as they make the request. Yeah, so like it's interesting. Right now, because the virtual production roles are sort of being developed, teams may run them similarly or they might divide their teams differently. Like, yeah, like the virtual production team, it's like half visual effects and half camera department in that sense exactly like what you're describing like so I felt like a major part of my role on set was to help bridge that communication and make sure that the bad team that doesn't necessarily have a ton of experience with set life and like set communication was on walkie or like listening or like was able to be connected with the gaffer or the DIT or the DP for the right conversation and sometimes I would translate the directions that the DP had because the controls in Unreal were slightly different. So, or, you know, helping the DP learn the language of the software so that instead of feeling like they were playing telephone with me after like the first day of testing or something, they could just say, use this tool to bring it up a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. But from a visual effects point of view, or I guess just with that with that background, collecting metadata and making sure that all of this information is recorded, you know, I think it, depending on how much development time your stage operating team has or your virtual production team has to create tools that can save those changes, that's going to be very critical moving forward. That's something that we didn't have. Yeah, because in, in that, like the heat of the moment and you make those changes... If those aren't being tracked and you need to access those later to Mm -hmm. rebuild the background because you weren't happy with it in post, not that you ever really want to do that, I guess you would want to at least start from where they were on set. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hmm. That's that's where like, it's just, you have to think about it the same way as any visual effects shot, I guess, essentially any change that you're making that impacts that virtual background are visual effects notes. Mm-hmm. And, and is that is that actually a possibility where you knew that on set you weren't quite happy with the environment? Maybe it wasn't even fully finished, but you still use it for the benefit of the lighting benefits that it has, knowing that you're going to have to still roto in post. I mean, maybe this isn't even a real scenario, but I guess I'll continue this train of thought, assuming it might be. <laughs> um, but is is it possible to essentially save that as a project, go back and then work on essentially cleaning that up and finishing the environment and lighting or whatever it may be in there to then re-render that to put in the background? Because traditionally on a lot of the jobs, at least I work on, I'm pretty sure the environments that they're creating are not in Unreal. But if you were on set, the environment's in Unreal, 
but people you know are not happy with it and need to fix i don't want to say fix it again in post but redo something yeah would they still go back to unreal while in post well i mean i guess like i think it comes down to like your budget and how you want to use these tools in your pipeline and like what you want to get out of them so for example Sure. I mean, I would I would go back and use an Unreal render if I didn't have access to other visual effects software. And I was kind of using this game engine to kind of make my whole film. Like that kind of makes sense. When you're building out a workflow like this, a disadvantage that we had on the project was having a limited amount of time. We really had maybe like eight weeks to prep for this shoot. And we should have been able to double that just minimum. And I would give that metric to bigger projects or any other project that wants to use these fix it and prep in camera visual effects workflows. It's like really plan on having an extended front end on the project. Because um, the thing that we did that's like totally different that most people probably wouldn't do as a practice was have our visualization companies, bad teams actually have their work go in as the final in-camera visual effects on the walls. Generally, what you'd want to do is have uh, your production designer manage your visualizations bad team and your visual effects companies, the effects team, and kind of hire your visual effects team and visualization team at the same time so that they're sharing assets, you have a non-destructive asset pipeline, and you could certainly... So like to your point where maybe you go and you shoot your content on an LED wall, maybe using a green screen frustrum in the background with the, you know, maybe the content that you've gotten from the visualization company, just so that you can, your actors can see the environment, you're being lit by the environment. Mm -hmm. But then in post, you could remove the green screen and apply the photo real visual effects teams full visual effects yeah or you know just simply kind of replace it because as you were shooting you were also capturing camera tracking data and all this other metadata that's super important and you also mentioned the green there so that would be around a chosen foreground object so that you could key it out you don't have to roto the whole thing yeah and, huh. and what you could do on set i mean in any even if you're shooting a green screen frustrum on a led wall so the advantages of the green screen frustrum on an LED wall would be uh, no green spill, which is nice. You get that clean lighting of your environment. And just just to make sure for people like me <laughs> that don't know what frustrum oh, yeah, sure. means. <laughs> the, so when you say green screen frustrum, you mean like a limited uh, space of green, whereas the surrounding area is the actual environment? Yeah. Well, so so imagine like you're shooting a camera with a 50 millimeter lens you would see your green screen match that frame lines, that exact lens. So your frustrum would match. Okay. I think, uh, sorry. I think, I think I get it now. So you have your frame lines that you would traditionally see on your camera or in your monitor. And so the green square or rectangle, I guess in this case would be mapped to those frame lines. So wherever you move the camera, the frame that you're actually framing for is actually all green but everywhere around that on the physical LED wall is the actual environment, therefore casting a light on the stage as you'd want it to. That's pretty amazing. So I guess then if you pan the camera and move around the green because the virtual camera 
is calibrated to track and move with the physical camera would move along with it, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, and I'm using focal length as a way to describe that because that's in Unreal how you would determine how wide or narrow those frame lines are that Frustrum is. I see. And that allows, it allows the um, game engine to um, optimize. But meaning like if you're moving around a virtual space, it's only processing what it sees in the virtual lens? Yeah, exactly. So you you know you would adjust it to be a little wider if we're experiencing latency, mm-hmm. but it definitely helps if you have more information in that background. I see. So that's what I, that's what I was kind of saying before, where there's a process right now happening trying to get different camera systems integrated with these smart stages because it's not just about pointing and shooting at the camera. You've got to make sure that Unreal Engine has tools developed inside of the software that interact with each camera essentially. Yeah, for sure. It's 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 interesting thinking about the amount of metadata that would go into this and, and all the discussions about, um, you know, even at the AIC, we've been talking a lot about tracking metadata. And there's certainly a problem, I feel, across the industry in general, general with tracking very simple metadata and coming up with nomenclature that everybody uses, you know, the same vocabulary and things like this translating this meta like and mm-hmm. I, I guess i'm just thinking like this all of a sudden yeah. there's a whole new world but i guess that's also a, a good opportunity that maybe because you don't have this legacy that some of the other metadata things do maybe you could get in front of that to try to have more people using the same terminology and translating the information in a little bit more of a cohesive standardized way yeah, well, I mean, upfront it adds a little bit more complexity because we're adding game engine language to metadata. <laughs> yeah. So part of this process too is actually working with DPs and I guess visual effects supervisors to say this is the language that we'd like to use. And when you're developing tools with your stage operators or your bad team or whoever's you know working with you in the engine on stage, you're building tools that represent metrics and naming conventions that are recognizable by people on set, really, yeah. and then finding commonality there. Interesting. So obviously a lot to digest there with the LED wall end of things, but the team were also using a virtual video village solution, right? I'm just curious if if you're able to speak to, I guess my first question would be, what company was brought to the table considering this is, a, this is certainly a hot topic right now? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. I would, so Greg Chaccio was our workflow architect and the head of post-production technologies. And he had a similar problem to solve that I did in the same sense where I was kind of helping organize vendors and making sure that we were trying out, you know, different techniques and things. He was also pulling in, resources for this virtual video village and these remote workflows and he put together some pretty amazing things for us i'd say one piece of this video village that worked extremely well was the teradek vault setup mm-hmm. and he was able to take this it's like it looks like it's in a backpack it's like this really interesting <laughs> like high-tech thing but it it's a really important network solution and it his configuration allowed us to essentially live stream our content with pretty much zero latency through fifth kind's core platform hmm. for our stakeholders at the same time, simultaneously and side by side, they were able to see a very wide angle fisheye witness cam of what we were doing on set. Well, that's interesting. 
It was very interesting. I mean, from a COVID safety standpoint, it gave everyone a lot of comfort to know that they could kind of feel like they were participating, but they could also see that we were being safe and everything was monitored. And then from a creative standpoint, it meant that one of our directors, Margot, could take an emergency trip to New York City and direct with zero latency from set. Hmm. I mean, remotely. Yeah. She could be directing um, and see what we could see. So I see. Or it meant that we could redistribute our crew on set and say, oh, wow, well, we notice a lot of people are kind of congregating around this monitor on day <laughs> one or during testing. Yeah. If people just use this on their iPhone or their iPad, they can stand X feet apart and have their own monitor. Mm hmm. It just really provided an interesting solution. And do you know if it was, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Moxion's Immediates workflow uh, where they actually allow you to, you know, the camera records and then the moment you stop the mm -hmm. camera recording, it triggers the proxy, which goes into the cloud, which goes into Moxion, and now people can control their own playback. Was that a thing or was it only a live video feed? So if you want to go back and review takes, like, would you have to call on a video assist operator or could you control that through FifthKind core? I can't speak to all of the details, but we had it set up in a way where the live feed and the witness cam were sort of separate from dailies. We ended up, I think, just delivering our dailies to Technicolor and they helped us upload those dailies to FifthKind Core. But then once we had all the dailies organized mm -hmm. in FifthKind Core, it was incredible because we had access to all of our visualization and pre-production assets linked to all of those dailies. So stakeholders could see the shot. They could see assets that we were building in relation to the shot. They could see the script notes from that day of shooting. Interesting. Yeah, consolidating digital assets into a dailies review platform, I think, makes a lot of sense. And to be honest, I'm surprised that a lot of other platforms like Pix and Dax and others haven't done this yet or caught up. But yeah, so for anyone taking on a job like this, attempting to get in-camera visual effects using an LED-walled stage, I'm curious if they should be expecting to slim down on staff or actually have more staff than they're used to on the traditional jobs. Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't think that this workflow necessarily slim down the roles that you need. I feel like everybody's roles that would normally exist are critical for this project. I think there's the addition of the virtual production component, like the stage managers and whoever's running your, your VAD content. I think from a virtual production, like VAD sort of side, making sure that you have a strong CG supervisor or like CG lead present, whether they're remote or on set, is critical just to make sure that the integrity of all of your assets are holding up, especially if you're getting in-camera, like final in-camera visual effects. Mm -hmm. You want to have those key leads present. Final in-camera visual effects. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just like, it's insane. It's something that we were also talking about from that standpoint was having somebody who is available to help with networking. Because especially if you're planning to have live streaming and remote employees, like whether they're in another room or... Yeah, and like remote video village, all of a sudden the internet goes down, who's on point for that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, and I would say that like that would be the, the interesting turn of events with this film was just, we need all these key people, but how do we organize them on our set so that they're in the vicinity or in the space or have a dedicated room that's COVID safe, where they mm -hmm. can be remotely working presently and still not on the set that the actors are on, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
there's a couple jobs that have happened here in Toronto that I thought were interesting with that, where the camera actually had what's called an ENGO attached to the camera, which sent the live video feed from the camera to the video assist operator that was sitting in his home. And then he was streaming out the signal to all the remote people from his home, and he wasn't even on set. It's pretty incredible what's now available to the world. And all emerged because of COVID, as terrible as the situation is, we've certainly fast-tracked a lot of technology. Yeah, totally. I mean, I thought an interesting part of the new set vibe um, (laughs) is welcoming computing to the onset process in a totally different way, you know, where you almost have to have a different type of patience and planning. Like what if the computers overheat that Mm -hmm. are running the LED wall? What if there's a power outage because you're shooting in August and there's no (laughs) air conditioning? Or what if you're experiencing computer crashing while a director is getting like the take of their lifetime. Yikes. Yeah. We were lucky enough like that that one didn't happen to us, but just some of the like overheating issues, I think. But it just makes you think, oh, okay, I'm aware that there are computers and computing on the stage. And that also comes into play when you're thinking about the culture on set, because people are always weirded out when you have like post people on like a production (laughs) set because two different worlds, right? But then what happens when you put like developers and engineers on that set who just don't really do the art, like some of the artistic side of either and they're maybe more analytical. So Mm -hmm. you just, there's some new soft skills that are coming with this teamwork as well, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Obviously it's pretty amazing to see so many various companies and leaders of our industry getting together to push a lot of these workflows and ideas, but we'd also like to see the movie. (laughs) Is that, is that on the horizon? How, How is that going? Yeah, we have a final film, and I believe it's actually now finished. It's gone through final color okay. and finishing. And I was so, it was so fun to watch it go through color because, you know, it was a great way to, um, in one case in our battlefield sequence, do some final, final integration of our practical and virtual set and kind of see those compositions come together. Well, here's a question for you as well, then, in regards to color. You know, when we normally do traditional final color work where we're getting visual effects shots from a vendor, we might receive mats with that. And therefore, you can color time specific layers Mm -hmm. during that final color process. Considering the fact Unreal has that virtual camera, I'm just wondering, is there any way for that to provide mats to your final colorists? It's almost like you'd have to flag the difference between what Unreal camera saw versus what the other camera saw, find the difference, and then that could create a mat. But that that could be interesting, I would think, if you could turn that over. I think that that is achievable. Hmm. What I can't speak to is whether it's out of the box achievable or if you'd have to develop, you know, spend some time developing that tool for a specific use. But I do think that is something that you can achieve. Interesting. Okay, but I guess back to the release of the film. What is the next action? I believe as of now, it's done. It's just not released. And what's exciting is we're timing the release with our white paper. We're all writing this white paper together with our findings to do this super deep dive, going through all of our use cases, giving anecdotes about what happened on set, how we planned it to go, how it really went, and then just learnings from pre-production all the way through post. 
So I think ultimately they're trying to time the release to come out together. But I know that our films, at least through the color of step. That's really exciting. I can't wait to see that. And for anyone that is involved in technology in any way in our industry, that the idea of getting a white paper and the film at the same time does sound pretty cool. Yeah. Well, all right. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate you joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. This is so much fun. Awesome. No problem. All right. And for everyone else, thank you very much for tuning in. Your support is very much appreciated. Again, I've got a few other exciting interviews lined up, so please keep an eye on LinkedIn and I will keep you posted on what's next. Until then, that's a wrap.